After a blowout loss to the Washington Capitals led to a loss of motion from Sidney Crosby, a discussion with Connor McDavid and the on-ice officials led to some comments from ESPN analyst John Tortorella, who is also a longtime NHL head coach. It got us thinking. Today's hockey stars need to change their in-game approach when it really matters, and when it's not a playoff scenario, are they getting enough support from the NHL officials? It's time to find out in episode 296 of the Lace Up Podcast, which starts right now. And now, it's time to Lace Em Up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Tuboff. Before we get into the main topic, Brett, uh, we do have some matters um, to bring up. And um, actually, both took place uh, this past weekend. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, And one even happened today as we're recording. Um, yeah, a few hours <laughs> from this recording, as a matter of fact, this uh, actually came out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, the first thing, and this is what we're talking about. Uh, Mark, I guess there were speculation... The last couple of weeks that Mar- Mark Bergevin uh, will be let go from Montreal um, as the GM there. Um, it's not too surprising considering Montreal hasn't been good this time. And, you know, he made all those. Um, and it's just they've just been disappointing throughout this whole thing. There was that whole Logan Malou situation as well. Um, and, um, yeah, so it just. Uh, and then he was like kind of involved with the Chicago Blackhawks, but it was unclear about how involved he was, but I doubt it had anything to do with this, <laughs> to be honest, um, as weird as that is to say, but uh, yeah, so Mark Bergevin is let go. Um, yeah, honestly, he he tried his best. He was a good GM for a time, because like, they made it to um, the Eastern Conference Finals back when they had like P.K. Subban and uh, Galchenyuk and Pacioretty and all those guys. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, they kept on trying to find their center and all these different things. But, uh, yeah, this, the last couple of years, um, you know, I, I, I think we can all agree that Canadians making the Stanley Cup finals last year was a bit of an aberration. Um, but yeah, the last couple of years, it, it seemed like, uh, Mark Bergevin has kind of doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and, um, and yeah, it, it kind of has all fallen apart this year. Um, I mean, a little bit to do with the fact that they have, they don't have Shea Weber, they don't have Carey Price. Um, but I, th- I think there's also the aspect of they didn't re-sign Philip Deneau. Um, although the contract that Deneau has right now is probably not great in the long term for, for them. Uh, they also don't have Kotka Niemi. Um, they did end up getting Christian Dvorak in as a as a center. He's been all right, but it does seem like everyone on the team has been underwhelming. Uh, pretty much everything that could go bad for Montreal this season has gone bad for Montreal this season. So, uh, yeah. So I I think it's um, I I don't know. I I feel like maybe. Ducharme also should have been fired as well, but um, but yeah, I think this is a, a big step in Montreal, and, and we'll see how it goes. 
Uh, there, there is speculation that, uh, for whatever reason, I, I, I don't understand why Montreal still does this, but the GM, um, also, um, they're looking for someone who can speak both French and English, um, which is interesting because Jeff Gordon is now the interim GM for Montreal at the moment, and I don't believe he speaks French, um, so... Uh, maybe he does, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting thing where it's like, wait, why? Like, there's not like they always have trouble finding coaches who can speak French. Um, like, they also have to find a GM that can speak French too. Like, I get it's important because it's Montreal has two languages in their city, but um, but it, it does seem weird that that is basically a requirement for for them. The not only is not only does Jeff Gordon, to my knowledge, not speak French, he is from Melrose, Massachusetts. Oh, that's right. That's so he's right. not even Canadian. He's yeah. American. That's right. I forgot which, about that. Yeah, which is backwards in itself. And mind you, they did have Max Pacioretty as their key team. Although, captain, to so be fair, kind of I mean, obviously, they speak English in Canada as well. So it's like. Yeah. <laughs> So it's not, yeah, it's not and, like, it would be crazy if it, like they hired, like, I don't know, um, a an Italian person or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> English is the not the primary language in Quebec. In fact, Quebec is about as immense, uh, takes immense pride, about as, immen- uh, about as much pride in their heritage uh, and their language as they do about hockey. Yep. And we all know how they're passionate they are about the sport of hockey. It's it's in their blood. You you can't get it out of them. Uh, and it, it just feels like it's a must where, yeah, you're good for the job. You might be Hall of Fame caliber guy. Do you speak French? If not, well, then that's strike one right there. Big fat strike one. And, I, I again, I, I said it when they hired Claude Julien. Or when they uh, made the decision to move away from Michel Therrien. Montreal is a very historic franchise that prides itself on winning and doing well and being playoff contenders every single year. And for the better part of the past five or six years, they've ranged from average to good to just downright awful. And they're I think five fifteen and two at the moment. They beat the Penguins six to three uh, on Saturday, November twenty seventh, in a game they gave up fifty shots and fortunately came out with the with the six three win. So they could have easily lost that game if not for Jake Allen's uh, solid play in net. Overall, just the team performance isn't working out, and they've already extended assistant coaches Luke Richardson and Alex Burrows, who did that, Mark Bergevin. He extended head coach Dominic Ducharme on top of that. And obviously at the time, yeah, it made sense because they just went to the finals when no one expected them to. So why not uh, change the formula that appears to, you know, not be flawed or broken? The thing is, there have been several opportunities where it looked like Mark Bergevin's dead in the water and one good season turns the tide around and he's, and he's safe from any sort of uh, punishment, any sort of uh, loss of employment, Mm -hmm. which in of itself, the the fact that he lasted almost a full decade with the Montreal Canadiens, 
And the fact that they had some memorable runs on his watch, he, he can definitely be proud of that. I think the Logan Mayu selection, the mishandling of Jesperi Kakaniemi, that's probably uh, two big strikes to his name, and then obviously the dreadful start there. The fact that they also got rid of Trevor Timmons, an assistant GM that has been with the team for many years as well, that also speaks volumes to me. Uh, prior to all of this, assistant GM Scott Mellenby resigned from his position after it was, I, I think the tipping point was if there was going to be a GM search, he would not be part of it. I guess he wasn't a fan of that and he stepped aside um, from his role once that was made clear. The fact that you're not really giving Jeff Gordon the keys to run the show as GM kind of makes me wonder who's really calling the shots because Jeff Gordon knows how to draft. He did some very good things with the New York Rangers. I yep. think he's a very capable GM. Yeah, but he's American, good. he doesn't speak French, so obviously he can't be the GM of the Montreal Canadiens. So I think they're probably they've probably hired the brains of the mothership in Jeff Gordon to oversee the hockey operations, to draft well, to develop well, to get those big name free agents to come to Montreal like uh, I don't know, a number one center they've been longing for all these years. And I I'm gonna call my shot right now. Patrick Waugh will be the GM of this franchise. He will be the guy that yeah. they get. You know why? Because he's passionate about hockey, he knows Montreal, and you know what he likes? Wins. Lots and lots of wins. And they did a lot of winning with Patrick Waugh. I'm not going to say it's going to be a smart move that they get him, but I have a feeling that's the direction they're going to be headed. It would be funny if Patrick Patrick Waugh actually ends up becoming the Habs GM, considering like his... How, how that uh, ended as him as a player where he just, like, didn't want anything to do with the GM or the team um, after that, like, 9-1 loss to the Red Wings. Um, it was mostly the coach, but, yeah, 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 the GM made the trade. Yeah, but the GM made the trade. I, I assume he would have uh, he would have been okay if, uh, if he didn't. Like, and he requested a trade. He even told the GM that he wanted out um, or that he played his last game in Montreal. So, um, he told the owner that before he told the GM. But yeah. that, that's right, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget the exact specifics. So anyways, it would be kind of funny yeah. if, if that was the case. However, I know this is like a bold prediction of yours. I really don't see it at all. Uh, mostly just because I said, Patrick... Uh, I said Claude Julian would go back to the Habs after he was fired by Boston. Yeah, you did call that. Later, that's, look what happened. That is true, you did call that. But um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like because Patrick Waugh is more in my eyes, more of a coach than a GM in my eyes. Um, I'm not actually not sure what he's doing now, um, that I feel like he doesn't want to necessarily be the GM. Although, actually, now that I think about it, because I think that was the reason why he didn't want to be in Colorado anymore was because he um, he felt like he wanted to make the decisions and not Joe Sackick or Joe Sackick. Yeah, there was there was a bit of a power struggle. I think it was largely tipped off by the fact that he wanted to get Alex Radulov in free agency. That's right. Sackick was hesitant and didn't want to. That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that that's that's correct. I forgot about that. So so yeah, maybe I guess there is a potential there. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I don't see that happening. Maybe 
it's possible, I guess, but it would be weird for me. <laughs> um, or be weird, I feel like. Um, but yeah, so, um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting because Bergerman, just like, you know, just the fact that he was around for a decade, it's just a testament to how good he was. But yeah, I think you did hit the nail on the head, the fact that, like, he, he treated the Kodka Niemi situation um, poorly, although there's nothing you could have done for that situation, I don't think. Uh, you should have paid Kotka Niemi $6.1 million for one year. Uh, let go of Philip Deneau um, yeah, as well. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, and, and, and again, Philip Deneau also is on a crazy contract too, so I'm not sure if you necessarily yeah. do that either. Um, however, it's like you're all of a sudden you're left with Nick Suzuki, who, yeah, he has had a couple of years uh, now or – just like a, a few years now where he has shown that he can be a capable one uh, first line center. Um, but then you also like, then it's like, well, all your centers are gone and you're back to square one where you were a few, few uh, years ago where like you were just craving for a center anywhere. Um, so, um, and they ended up getting Christian Tvorak and he hasn't been as good as we thought he would be. So, so yeah, I, I think that there was that hail. I think there's also a, a sense of, and I mentioned this before, but I don't know if it necessarily was like the exact contribution, but I, I can I can I I wouldn't be shocked if Montreal with like his with Bergevin's involvement with the Chicago Blackhawks situation, um, I wouldn't be shocked if the, if that played into his eventual uh, firing um, as well. But I, I don't think it played the major part uh, just because, like, the investigation showed that he was, like, he, he was just, like, low on the totem pole, and we don't know exactly how much he knew compared to what Shevel Dayoff knew and what uh, Quenville knew. Um, so so there is that. There is always going to be that mystery of, like, how much did Bergevin know from that standpoint. But... Yeah, I, I, I don't think it was um, just that, obviously, but um, we'll see. Um, and the Logan May lose situation, as you, as you mentioned as well. Um, all right, the other thing, the situation that happened um, involves your team, your team actually. Uh, late on Saturday night, um, uh, Brandon Lemieux of the Kings and Brady Kachuk of the Ottawa Senators. Um, and yes, that is the son of Claude Lemieux. And yes, that is the son of uh, Keith Kachuk. And apparently when I was watching the clip of this, um, they, they, by the way, they got into a fight. I forget if I mentioned that or not. Uh, they got into a little bit of a scuffle. Um, but, uh, but apparently they said that Keith Kachuk and Claude Lemieux also had a feud back when they were playing which is kind of interesting. It's like, oh, the Suns are kind of uh, carrying, passing the torch over. Uh, they, this, the entire family has issues with each other. Um, but anyways, uh, they had a fight um, and a scuffle where uh, Brady Kachuk was actually down on the ground. Um, and uh, apparently, Brady, uh, it's unclear ex about how accurate this is, but Brady Kachuk told the refs, that Brandon Lemieux 
uh, bit his hand, and he showed, like, his hand getting bloody. Um, however, just from all the clips that we've seen, it's unclear if he actually did that. Um, however, there is going to be a hearing, um, and we're unclear about what's, what's going to happen. Um, and then Kachuk later goes on uh, to tell, you know, he goes on to the media and says that uh, Brandon, Brandon Lemieux is a gutless player. He goes full Ryan Miller because this is what Ryan, that's what Ryan Miller called Lucic back in the day. Uh, just calls him gutless and says that there's a reason why no team wants him. Um, and this is like, this is Brandon Lemieux's, I think, fifth team, maybe fourth team um, or something like that. What's interesting, though, is that, um, I think I was looking this up the other day, Brandon Lemieux is actually hasn't had a, a terrible season so far. He has four goals and one assist. I mean, I guess that's not great, but um, but in like 20 games or so. But usually, he you know, he's more of a, like a, a, I guess he is still playing like bottom six minutes and all that stuff. But usually, um, you know, he's, he's just playing that enforcer role or, you know, just being an intimidation factor. So it, it is interesting to see that he's, like, getting four goals and one assist with very little ice time. I think his highest ice time was 13 minutes um, in a game against Carolina. Um, so so it is interesting that he is kind of scoring now, and Brady Kachuk is saying, like, oh, no one, no one wants you on your team, and apparently maybe he has some information inside information from the teams that he was in, like the Rangers or the Sabres or something like that. But um, I do find it interesting that um, he didn't mention that because it's like, I, I guess it's not too surprising because play, NHL players know other NHL players. Um, and also, like, Matthew is his brother who's now in the uh, the Kings division. Um, mm. So so there is that as well, but... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with the NHL stuff. There is an in-person hearing, so he's at least uh, guaranteed to be suspended. I think it's two games, right? Is that the minimum? No, it's at least five. Oh, it's at least five. Okay, I was wrong on that. Thanks for correcting me there. Um, so, so yeah, he's at least out for five games. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, it's interesting to see what goes on and... Um, yeah, it's, and, and yeah, this is a, kind of a, a crazy move uh, to, to bite someone's hand if he actually did do it. Yeah, um, I don't know why. Well, the last two times Ottawa has uh, gone to L.A., interesting things have happened. First, it was their final game since uh, b- uh, before COVID hit in 2020, and then uh, now uh, Brady Kachuk gets his hand bitten, allegedly, by Brendan Lemieux. Yeah. And obviously there's blood on his hand. You can see there's blood on his hand. Uh, so the question becomes, well, how did he get blood on his hand? And if you look at the scrum, there are a couple of things that if you slow the play down – you can kind of see what leads to it. First of all, the LA Kings get an innocent-looking shot on goal on Philip Gustafson. Gustafson stops it cleanly, forces a whistle. Um, I guess Lazat uh, gives Gustafson a slight snow shower, and Kachuk didn't really like that, so Lemieux comes to uh, his teammates' aid, um, and uh, it looks like they're going to get uh, some offsetting minors for roughing, Uh Left corner boards, they go for a tussle. Uh, Brady's on top of Lemieux, then Lemieux gets on top of Brady, and 
in between that, they're exchanging punches, and I think Brady is trying to pull uh, Brendan away because he's on top of the pile, and it's just him and Brendan on this pile. It's just those two and some officials trying to break it up. And Brady tries to pull uh, Brendan away by pushing his face away or whatever, and then, like, I guess Brendan, like, gets up for a little split second, and Brady, I would assume unintentionally I think catches Brendan with an elbow and that in the heat of the moment the split second heat of the moment probably pisses off any player you don't like to get hit uh, in the face with an elbow like that Uh, so I'm guessing that's what leads to a few seconds later where it looks like based on how his head is uh, bobbing and weaving it looks uh, what what ensues over the final few seconds is what I would think it looks like when someone gets ready uh, to take a bite out of something. Um, Brandon Lemieux's head is what is it, it looks like uh, an action of like grabbing someone's uh, hand, like getting a hold. He was getting a hold of something. I assume was probably like his hand. Uh, Brady's hand within his, like, I guess, facial range. And then his head just bobs down, then bobs back up, then bobs back down again. And I'm guessing those are where the alleged biting incidents happened, if they did happen. And Brady was very animated after that, saying he bit him multiple times to the ref, more so out of bewilderment because he he couldn't believe that someone would just go into like play box mode and resort to baby style tactics. And he he said after the game, babies do that. That's not hockey at all. And uh, the refs agreed. They gave him five in a game. And Lemieux, of course, is going for what? And Brady says, yeah, you enjoy that. You enjoy that as Lemieux walks off the ice. So Brady is pretty convinced that this happens by the by the sounds of the in-person hearing it looks like the nhl department of player safety believes brady's side of the story and they're going to chat with lemieux and sort this out and the fact that it's an in-person hearing it's not like one of those 5k fines wash your hands of this we never speak of it again it's okay this is serious uh we're taking this seriously we're going to chat with the guy and we're going to make our ruling at at that point and Todd McClellan, the Kings coach, made it very clear that this stuff doesn't fly. And if this did, in fact, happen, that um, obviously Lemieux and him were, were going to have a chat about it. Lemieux can't really afford to make any mistakes here. Like you said, Brett, this is his fourth team. The last team that he was on, he was getting ragtag by uh, Trent Frederick. I'm sure you and your fellow yep. Bruins fans, Brett, know all that too well. Uh, Trent Frederick basically owned Brendan Lemieux throughout most of uh, that season series uh, between the Bruins and Rangers last year. And he gets traded midseason to the Kings. I think would be a very serviceable bottom six guy for them. And in a crowded prospect system where surely more guys are going to get their chances to go up the depth chart, Brendan Lemieux can't afford to lose a roster spot to anybody. And if he misses any significant amount of time, and he gets stuck in a goal-scoring funk, he could be looking uh, for a new team. What what even uh, intrigued me the most out of all of this is the Sens and Kings don't play again until next year. They've already had their meeting in Ottawa. They had their meeting 
uh, at the Staples Center, uh, soon to be uh, Crypto.com or whatever the heck, um, <laughs> on, on uh, Christmas Day. Um, so now I'm interested, okay, is Matt and Chuck taking notes, taking names, and going yep. after Brendan Lemieux every chance he gets? Um, out of the sake of his brother Brady, because I have Cause, a feeling they're in the same division, yeah. pretty tight knit group as well. Um, yep. But yeah, very very strange incident. I didn't think anyone would uh, resort to those kind of tactics, but here we are. Yeah, it's, it is strange. By the way, so I looked this up. For, uh, I looked up Brandon Lemieux's stats. Um, this is actually his third team, not fourth team or fifth team. Um, and um, well, yeah, in terms of games played, you're right. But if you remember, he was a Sabres draft pick and he was involved in the Evander Kane trade from Winnipeg to Buffalo. Yeah, but he never played a, a game for Buffalo. Um, right. So with four organizations, but technically three teams. Three yeah, teams that and, he played for. And also, like, yes, you're right. He, he did get traded in the Buffalo to Winnipeg deal that sent uh, for, for Evander Kane. But like you know, that that's not because of a personality issue. Maybe if he was when he was traded from Winnipeg to the Rangers, you could maybe make a case that that maybe there was like some personality thing, or the Rangers to L.A., which I think there was a personality thing. Um, so so you could say that, but it, it, it's I think it's really tough when it's like you haven't even played a game, so you can't really say like, oh yeah, he just wasn't a good culture fit there. Um, so, so anyways, it's, you're right. It technically it's his fourth team, but he's only played for three teams. Um, and, um, and the other thing that I found that was interesting, and I, I mentioned this before, but yeah, he has five points in 14 games and, uh, he had, and you look at his average time on ice, it's 10 minutes of ice time. So, so that, so that's, that's actually not too bad for a fourth liner, basically, um, which, which was kind of my point is, yeah, he, he does get a lot of hits, um, and a lot of, and a couple of blocks every now and then, but, um, but yeah, it, it is, he, he's more known for his like gritty style and enforcer stuff, but, um, but yeah, it does seem like even like five points in 14 games, which isn't really a lot for, you know, a, like a first liner, but you have to consider the fact that He's a fourth liner, and they don't often score that much, and that's that's kind of a lot for for someone like that, especially four goals in fourteen games. Um, so so yeah, that's pretty good um, in a way. Um, and also uh, before we before we go uh, to the main topic, I just wanted to, to throw this out. Uh, did you have one final point? Uh, I did have one final our... point. Uh, okay. I just want I just that and that, this last thing. Okay, I just wanted to mention the fact that. Claude Lemieux famously um, was uh, like turtled um, when uh, he was faced against the Detroit Red Wings um, because of this like uh, Franzen hit that he made the, the previous game. Um, so it, it is kind of like give it to like the Lemieux who uh, tend to just pull off this like immature um, Status. Leave it to a Lemieux to to be immature on the ice when they when the going gets tough. Anyways, except for Mario, he's a good kind of Lemieux. Well, yeah, but um, they're not related. But yes. Yeah. Um, I should mention on the waiver wire, Matt Murray was placed on waivers by the Ottawa Senators. There were rumblings that the Sabers and Coyotes, given their cap space yep. that they have, um, and given the fact they don't really have much of anyone else in net. 
Um, they might make a claim. Nobody did. He is being assigned to the Belleville Senators. He has cleared waivers. But uh, interesting development. Speaking of Evander Kane, the Sharks have put him on. Oh, yes. Yeah. I did see that. I have a feeling no one's going to claim him, though. Uh, <laughs> no one will claim Evander Kane. There's no chance. Yeah, yeah, because it's like um, his cap hit is like $7 million, and the fact that there's this all this other stuff that's coming in the way, too. Yeah, so. that and yeah. he's probably disliked by every single player on the San Jose Sharks. Yep, yeah, that's true. Um, it kind of reminds me of like what happened to Tony D'Angelo last year. Uh, where he was put on waivers, but then no one wanted to deal with him. Um, so, so maybe there is going to be a similar type thing, like career path in in that sense, where like he'll be yeah. Able to... it, it, except in Evander Kane's case, uh, there's gambling allegations, there's sexual assault allegations. Right. On top of that, a locker room distraction, which D'Angelo doesn't have to deal with. True. Also, True. a high cap, and he doesn't have to deal with that either. He's on like close to a league minimum. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, too. All right. Um, so now we go to the main topic. Um, it's uh, This is actually a couple of these things were things that actually happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but because we wanted to talk about the California teams, we want, we had that hot streak, cold streak thing, that uh, uh, topic in our minds for a while. Um, and then, of course, the Chicago Blackhawks stuff ha- happened as well. So we... Um, so we kind of like kept on pushing this back, um, and we realized like this kind of has a short shelf life if it's already forgotten about already. But um, John Tortorella. Uh, so there's a couple of things that happened. Um, John Tortorella. Um, well, first off, I guess I, I can go in chronological order here because it happened around the same time. Um, Connor McDavid um, was playing the Boston Bruins, um, and there was a. Uh, he was getting tri- he got tripped uh, very clearly um, even f- from this Bruins fan you know he was tripped when even I believe it I think Jack Edwards that's actually the true test is when Jack Edwards was saying like wait I, I, I thought that was a penalty um, and um, on, on the Bruins and uh, yeah so it wasn't called um, and it was it kind of was outrageous I, I feel like um, I forget who actually tripped him but um, but it was crazy because then you go to, you know, when he went on Twitter, everyone was like, it was so egregious that everyone on Twitter was saying like, how did he not get caught? Like, how did McDavid not get called on that? Or, you know, because he draws a lot of penalties, that was a very obvious trip and he didn't get called. Um, and then, um, and then Tortorella, it was kind of around the same time as that big goal that Connor McDavid had as well um, against the Rangers, and John Tortorella was talked about it in their like ESPN show. Um, so I have it verbatim of what he said. Um, so so he was asked by Butchergrass, "What is the next step to becoming a winning player, a playoff winner? Because you are not going to get calls you do in the regular season. He didn't last year, and that was a bit of an issue." Um, what, what was interesting is, is that, um, before I get into torts, um, and I forgot to mention this, uh, Connor McDavid draws the most penalties, um, in the entire league for the last two years or two seasons, um, in the regular season. However, in the last two years in the playoffs, 
he hasn't drawn one penalty, um, which is pretty insane. Um, so uh, this is what Torts said. Um, he complained about it a little bit. He wasn't getting the calls, quite honestly, and I hope I say it clearly, just shut up. Don't talk about it. I do think he has to change his game a bit, but not turn into a checker, obviously. Uh, he's talked about culture. He's talked about standards. Um, he's talked about winning. You're not going to outscore teams and fill the net. You have to play on the other side of the puck. You have to have a business-type attitude. Nothing is going to bother me, no matter how you're going to check me. Don't talk about it. Just play hard and play through it. The other side of the puck is that important. Come playoff time, I think he's learning. Um, Tibbet is going to have to get that whole group if they are talking about a Stanley Cup. They're all going to have to play a little bit of a different way and not just try to outscore teams. Um, and then... Um, I think we even mentioned this back when we were talking about McDavid um, with that big goal of like this, like Torts had this to say. So now we have this actual quote that uh, Torts said. Um, you know, I, I think it is interesting because there is a different dynamic when you're in the playoffs. Um, it's just like, it, it's not consistent. It's uh, you're, and also of course with like the sudden death overtime, uh, play, you know, it's just a, a very, very loose and stuff like that. And that can be good and bad because it is good because you get more skill guy, you know, you get, you get to see what teams are really like where, when they don't have to rely on the power play to get their points. Um, and, and that's, you know, so it's, it's quite literally a different game. It adds to the atmosphere. It makes it so different from the playoffs and stuff. However, um, it's bad because it's not consistent with what's going on in the regular season where they're just not calling anything uh, or where they're they're calling a lot of things and that can make a team feel like they're, you know, like they're going to um, win when, when it's just much more loose and free in the playoffs. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I think that's really what started this whole debate was just thinking about okay, should Connor McDavid change the way that he plays? Um, but because that's just going to lead to um, him being more, you know, just because of the Edmonton like, Oilers and their chance to win. Um, and I, I guess there is some truth to what Torts is saying. Uh, but I think on the other hand, it's like, um, he's Connor McDavid. He's a very, very special player. Um, it would be tough to, to see him like start to be like, I guess there's nothing, no harm in him being a two way forward. That's what Crosby did. That's what uh, Ovechkin did. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I feel like McDavid's just a special rare talent where he can score at will. Um, even if he's not getting the calls um, rightly or wrongly. And, and we'll talk about eventually the consistency of the playoffs and the regular season, um, in one of our questions, but, um, but yeah, it is, it is an interesting thing of like, do you have, like, how do you even prepare for the playoffs, um, with, with that, with how the regular season goes? Yeah, well, just taking a look at, um, at McDavid's stats in terms of penalties drawn, you have 18 penalties drawn, nine penalties drawn as a rookie, and that was um, the broken clavicle season that kind of slowed him down. Imagine what those numbers would have been 
uh, if he wasn't slowed down by that injury and missed 30 plus games, whatever the number was. Um, then he draws 52 penalties his second year, first 100 point season, 27 power play points, uh, leads the entire league in penalties drawn, plus 39 net penalties. So he only takes 13 penalties and draws 52. Uh, not surprisingly, leads the league in, uh, in net penalties um, his second year. Then he draws 36 his third year, that's ninth. 35th his uh, fourth year, that's seventh overall. Uh, 24 in 2019-20, 64 game season. He's 22nd in that regard. Uh, 2020-21, that was last year. Second in penalties drawn with 29 in 56 games. So you're probably looking at another 40 or 50 penalties drawn in a full 82 games. And then so far this year, 11 penalties drawn, that's eighth. Um, and in terms of uh, net penalties, uh, in three of his first four seasons, years two, years three, and years four, his net penalty has been plus 20 or better. Plus 39 is uh, second year, as I mentioned. Uh, Twenty Plus 27 is third year. That was second in the league. And uh, plus 25 is fourth year. That was uh, fifth in the league. And then uh, last year, he uh, led the league in net penalties with a plus 19. Which goes to show you in the regular season that he's pretty good at uh, drawing calls. And why not? Because you look at the way he plays, and again, we say it time and again, no one plays like Connor McDavid. Like, the dude skates at superhuman levels. He scores and passes with precision better than practically any hockey player that we've seen. His on-ice vision is just incredible. And it, it makes me wonder if part of this has to do with uh, something that we touched on last year with the Tim Peel stuff. Yep. Remember Tim Peel and I think it was Detroit and Nashville that were playing and um, it basically caught on Mike that uh, he, he, was he, he was thinking about uh, getting um, – a makeup call against Nashville in the third period or, or something along those lines. I wonder if game management has anything to do with Connor McDavid maybe not getting as many calls as he like. Because if you look at the Edmonton Oilers power play, like I was just looking through the stats this season yeah. and it's already ridiculous. Like, with Connor McDavid on the power play, Edmonton is outscoring teams twenty to nothing on the power play, outshooting them ninety-four to thirteen. We're not even into Christmas yet, and we're we're just getting into like crazy weird territory. Yeah, it's crazy. And you have guys like Poole Yarby starting to pile up points like a top five pick would. Nugent Hopkins racking up points. Drysital being Drysital. McDavid being McDavid, you got Zach Hyman in the mix there. A decent amount of depth forwards that maybe could chip in time and again. If you put this team on a power play seven or eight times in a hockey game, they'd probably score four or five per game. It's all about, if, if it's all about like game management and giving other teams a fighting chance, it, it might not be right, but I'm just saying it could explain why maybe McDavid doesn't get so many calls. Because there's only so many legal things you could do to actually stop him from scoring goals or setting up plays. Right. He's impossible to stop legally. So 
you're almost being forced into taking a penalty to just to slow him down. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, Leon Dreisaitl is, while we're on the subject of Leon Dreisaitl, uh, he's on pace uh, to have two points per game. Uh, <laughs> right now he has uh, 20 goals, 20 assists in 20 games. Um, so he, he is on pace for 82 goals and 82 assists, which is crazy. Just put him on the $20 bill. Over yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. Um, and then, um, and yeah, and, and it, it, what's, what's crazy is like universally, I think we all agree that Connor McDavid's the best player um, in the world. But like, meanwhile, you have his teammate who is uh, averaging two points per game, um, which is just insane. Um, Anyways, uh, going back to this, uh, Torts, uh, McDavid subtly responds to those comments uh, that Torts had said, and he said, I guess I got to shut up about this. Um, so, I, I guess we'll start off, with, before I get into the Crosby stuff, because that kind of relates to the other, the last two questions, um, does Torts have a point? Uh, Torts have a point about changing his game? Yes. I would say yes, in the sense that, as the Tampa Bay Lightning have showed us, the playoffs are a different beast. 120 to 130 point season from one player doesn't mean crap, even if you're going up against a team like Columbus in the first round, if you can't score goals when it matters. You look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, and we talked about this through their last couple of playoff runs, that mammoth 5 OT game against Columbus to start the playoff bubble in 2020, August of 2020, some, somewhere along that timeline. And there were probably a lot of circumstances where Tampa Bay was thinking mentally, oh boy, they're goalieing us, here we go again. We're going to fall behind one nothing. They're going to have the edge going into game two. This is not going to go well. And four of those five games were decided by a goal, and Tampa won most of them and won the series in five games. If you're mentally tough and you're able to get the goals in big situations, no one cares how many penalties you draw. Nobody cares how many goals you set up, how many goals you score. As long as you get in the big moments, the big plays that you need. Edmonton hasn't done that. The past two playoffs have been mammoth disappointments. They lost three out of four to Chicago in what everyone thought was a winnable series, probably a slam dunk series for them. Chicago was the lowest seed in the West. Edmonton had McDavid and Dreisaitl firing on all cylinders throughout the season prior to the stoppage. They figured, ah, they're going to be fine. They're going to get, you know, average goaltending, and they didn't. They were going to get depth scoring. They didn't. They were going to get enough defense to stop the Chicago offense. They didn't get enough of that either. And then in Winnipeg, they were able to keep the Stars in check. Yes, it starts with McDavid and Dreisaitl, but the depth guys need to show up too. And and Tortorella, in his assessment with uh, with Dave Tippett and getting his team to buy into the Stanley Cup dream and getting them to play a certain way, he's 100% right on the nose on that. Mm-hmm. It's a team effort. The playoffs, it's where a team becomes a team or a team unravels and you start to see its flaws. That's, that's where the playoffs make or break teams. 
in that sense. So he's 100% right on that. And there are certain parts of McDavid's game that he needs to change. He doesn't necessarily have to change the way he plays. He, Like Tortorella says, he doesn't need to become like a bottom six grinder or like lay people out. But in terms of like the two-way side of things, there's always room for improvement. And sometimes it takes years to develop that craft. Look at Joe Sackick, Steve Eisman, Mike Madano. That didn't happen overnight. It took years and years of heartache before they got to experience any sort of triumph. So it's, it's a long process. It can be a frustrating process. But I definitely think McDavid is on the right track, and I definitely think he will become that player that Torts wants him to be. Yeah, I think there is an... I think there is some truth to what Torts is saying. Um, like, there, yeah, like, obviously McDavid is a generational talent. Um, he, you know, he has the potential to be better than Gretzky was. Um, and, you know, and, and we've, we've talked ad nauseum about how great uh, Connor McDavid is. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think he, he also did mention Alex Ovechkin, um, in this video, and I yep. think that is a good point. Crosby also could apply to this as well, where, um, where like they started off in the like when they were young, they started off as just you know be like relying purely on their talent, which is obviously something that they're they're all skilled enough to do. All three of those guys are generational talents, um, so they can just you know coast on that and stuff. But I I do think that. Alex Ovechkin worked on his defense, um, and he, you know, and he focused in and and started to, um, and once he was able to do that, then the Capitals were able to to go that extra step and win the Stanley Cup. Um, and same can be applied to Crosby. I think there was like comments about like how early on in Crosby's career he uh, he was bad in faceoffs, so he would always focus on them. Um, in the summer and the off season, and then um, and then he just got better, and now he's one of the better two way forwards in the game, on faceoffs as well. So it's something that he's clearly worked on, and obviously faceoffs, you know, is like it's it, it's not like scoring, but face off winning faceoffs are very important too. Um, so so the uh, so the aspect of like Crosby adding that skill to his game also helps. Crosby win three cups in his career as well and, and puts them up um, like you know compared to guys like Eric Lindros or, or things like players like that who are who are very talented but didn't have that work ethic to to do something even more just to get that extra level um, to what the team needs him to be um, not just being a scorer Um and, you know, it, it is funny, though, on the other hand, because, like, scoring goals is very, is obviously the objective of, of a hockey game. You will have to score goals, like, even if it's the assist, which McDavid uh, primarily does as well. But, um, but yeah, so it, it is an interesting thing, because, like, yeah, you, your job, and Conor McDavid even said that at one point, is like his job is to score goals. and um, and um But it's also to be a complete team player as well. So I, I do agree to some of what Tortorella is saying, but I, I don't think I would tell Conor McDavid to shut up. 
Um, I, I feel like uh, that that might be a little bit. He he could have said it a little bit nicer, but of course it's Torts who who kind of tells it like it is and um, never apologizes. So so that's that's very um, that that's very reminiscent of what Tortorella is like. Um, to to add to add that fairness to those comments, obviously Tortorella would know what it takes to win. Stanley yep. Cup playoff series and going to consistent playoff runs every single year and making the most out of his team because he did that a fair amount in Columbus. He did it with the Rangers. Yep. He won a cup with the Lightning, as we all know. Um, so he's been around the game a fair bit and he kind of knows his yep. way of land. Um, now, when talking about uh, the shut up comment, uh, that side of things, uh, I definitely get that it's a bit harsh, but. I think the message can be applied in the sense that if McDavid doesn't show any emotion in those big games, people are trying to knock him down and drag him and hook him and trip him and all this stuff. And McDavid just doesn't react. And it gets into the mental psyche of the other guys. Just like, man, I can't get this guy off his game. He's unflappable. And he just becomes even more determined just like mentally. He's just like, man, I'm going to beat these guys so bad. And so he just skates even harder, and he's even tougher to contain. And then you have no choice but to take penalties. Yeah. So when you, I, I think he's trying to get to that side of McDavid's game where he becomes basically unflappable. He just keeps elevating that level in intensity, and then eventually the calls start going McDavid's way because other players have no choice but to resort to extreme measures just to try to slow him down yep. to prevent him from getting a shot on goal. Well, that, that, that's yeah, clearly that, what they, that's clearly what they do in the uh, regular season <laughs> and they just get called because that's the only way to slow yeah, him down. So, so use yeah. the regular season as a teaching tool. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. Act like every single game is game one of the playoffs. It's a new slate. Yeah. That's a good point. And it's all about elevating your game getting the intensity and tone of the game at the level to where you want it. So when the games really matter, it's less challenging to adjust to that. Yeah. Consider of every single game as like a mini playoff series yep. and that you're one step closer to getting to where you are. And the amount of excellence, uh, culture, the emphasis on culture, um, the emphasis on winning games it's never been higher in Edmonton uh, than it uh, than it was in the early 2010s, mm. in the late 2000s, even in the years before that. We're starting to see the Oilers develop a level of expectation where they're trying to win the Stanley Cup every single year they play. And we haven't seen that in an awfully long time in Edmonton. Yeah, that actually kind of reminds me, like, when you're talking about just, like, playing your game and just focus on on yourself and all that stuff and don't get riled up by the calls that you get or what, or you don't get. Um, It kind of reminds me, again, to bring up the Crosby comparison. Because, like, Crosby had, like, early on in his career, he had the reputation of being a crybaby where he would always complain to the refs uh, to the point where all these fans would keep up, like, recklessly call them, like, girls' names or crybaby and all these different things. Um, obviously, the I, I think society has changed. Just I'd like to think that people don't resort to that anymore. Um, but it was, it was, I mean, it was, like, 10 years ago. Um, 
So, and now it's like, it uh, like it does make him more dangerous because I don't think, whenever I watch Penguins games, I don't think he ever really complains anymore. Um, so, that, yeah, that's, that's another um, aspect of it for sure is like, okay, like it makes you that much more intimidating when you, when you don't complain to the refs or you're not seen as someone who gets riled up easily. Um, it helps when you have the experience of winning multiple Stanley Cups. That, that is a good point, too. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think there is something that McDavid could learn from Crosby in, in that sense as well. Um, yeah. All right. Um, and then, speaking of Crosby, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't say, like, yes, he, he he's kind of has stopped complaining, but he is still kind of on occasion a dirty player. Uh, this actually happened around the same time as these torts comments happened towards McDavid. We thought it was kind of related um, together was that uh, Crosby, uh, so this was November 14th, so this was like two weeks ago, um, the Penguins were down 5-1 to one to the Capitals, um, and uh, Crosby and Martin Faravee are going um, to the boards after Crosby shoots something. And then um, they're both going to the boards. There's a, kind of like this incident um, where they're both going to the boards and probably falling off. And then Crosby kind of like maneuvers himself so that he like throws Martin Faravee onto the ground. Um, it was a very, like, it was a pretty dirty play. Um, it, it seemed very, very intentional. Um, you know, I, I, I think we can all understand, like, Brad, this happened to Brad Marchand. Um, on, on Saturday when, um, he, you know, he got, uh, Panarin riled up even though the game was over basically. Uh, but it, it kind of was a little bit similar to this where Crosby basically just like threw Martin Faravee down on the ground, even though they were losing. Um, and, uh, there was a here, um, apparently the NHL didn't suspend, uh, Sidney Crosby for this, um, for this type of incident. Um, and it got me thinking that, like, if Crosby was, um, or if this was Brad Marchand, to take it <laughs> to that level, or if this was, actually, if this was, like, Tom Wilson, um, if this was um, literally anyone who's not even known for their scoring abilities, uh, just an average NHL player, I, I think the NHL would suspend that player. But since it's Sidney Crosby, um the NHL just didn't suspend him. And that, that, that feels kind of crazy to me that, um, that like he, he was clearly, I, I get that he was frustrated and all that stuff, but like, that's no excuse to just throw some, someone like that on the ground like that. Um, so it, it does feel like in a way the NHL does have a superstar treatment, uh, towards their, their big stars. However, if you contrast that to what's going on with McDavid, um, where he's he he sometimes isn't getting the calls, he's not oh or like even in, during the playoffs, he is um he's not getting the calls, um, and um, uh, when, I, I'm talking specifically when he was tripped against Boston, he wasn't getting that call, but then he draws a lot of penalties, so it does make me wonder: is there superstar treatment in the NHL? Um, I think there is, but, like, in the same sense as there's, like, a superstar treatment in the NBA, um, there's a superstar treatment to a lot of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, like, 
Um, and, and when I say, like, the NBA, coming back to that, like, you know, LeBron James gets uh, fouled a lot. Um, all, like, Steph Curry gets fouled a lot. Like, Giannis gets fouled a lot. Um, and, you know, then you get foul shots and all that stuff. And, and, yeah, there is a certain amount of skill, like you were talking about, to drawing those penalties because that's the only tactic that you can do where it feels um, like that. But then if you go reversely where, like, Crosby is allowed to pretty much manhandle any player on the ice, and that doesn't seem fair either. So I, I do think there is some superstar treatment in the NHL, um, but I'm not really sure how to do with it, how what to do with that um, information or how to fix it, basically. Um, because, like, if you're a ref, like, yeah, you're supposed to be unbiased, but then at the same time you're aware that, like, Crosby's one of the best players in the game. Um, you're, you're aware that McDavid is the best players in the game. Um, so, so it is a kind of a tricky situation because you have to, um, be impartial and sometimes refs aren't doing that way, but because you know that Crosby's a superstar, you know that McDavid's a superstar, um, it, there is that bias towards those players. Um, I had another point, but I'll, I'll let you answer this question as well. Um, if I can think of it. <laughs> So, if you remember in the 1980s when Rain Gretzky was at his prime, obviously there would be guys, you know, trying to shut him down, try to get under his skin. And you know what happened if you did that? You got Marty McSorley. Marty McSorley was Wayne Gretzky's protector. If you messed with him, he would go to your bench and say, hey, that's enough. And if you, if you tried him after that, if you tried to go after Gretzky – McSorley wouldn't let you get away with it. And the days of the Enforcer, Brian Reese be damned, the days of the Enforcer are fading away. The NHL wants less violence in the game. They want to obviously keep the physical nature, but the fighting or whatever, they've wanted to veer away from that for a few years. It, I feel like it started to uh, flame up a little bit in the past couple of years, mostly because the Department of Player Safety is really inconsistent with their discipline, uh, which doesn't help. But... For the most part, there are less protectors out there that protect their stars if they're challenged by other guys, if they're getting slashed and hooked and tripped all the time. So without that, I feel like the stars are mostly left to defend for themselves. And before I get to that, I want to point out Tom Wilson versus Artemi Panarin last year. Yeah. All Tom Wilson got was a $5,000 fine. I don't really know the NHL is protecting their stars there. Artemi Panarin's clearly the star player. They didn't yeah, protect him well enough. That incident with Johnny Goudreau uh, getting hacked and slashed at least a dozen times by Minnesota in the game. And uh, that was a few years ago, but yes. back into the lineup, uh, I think we talked about it a couple of years ago, Brett. Yep. He had like uh, added protection on his gloves because of all the slashing from that Minnesota game. Yep. Who was there to protect Johnny Gaudreau? I don't think anyone got suspended from that, for, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. So I I think if the superstar players are left to fend for themselves, I don't really think there's a superstar treatment where the NHL favors its star players. And um, I'll give you a few examples uh, here of cases where the, the refs give the stars the benefit of the doubt and a couple of cases where they don't. 
So for Connor McDavid, we just talked about him. Uh, the amount of penalties that he's drawn, 205 since he entered the league. If you look at the stat, that uh, this penalties drawn stat that's being tracked by NHL.com, it's, it kicked into effect at the start of the 2009-2010 season. Connor McDavid at that point, I think, hadn't even played his first season of U16 AAA. Not even drafted by the OHL uh, Erie Otters. Never played an OHL game at that point. And was like, I think, a teenager back then right. when this uh, stat was keep, uh, keep tracked. And he's 64th in penalties drawn since the stat was first being tracked in 2009-2010. He's fourth in the league, I believe, uh, since he entered the league in that stat with 205 penalties drawn, plus 136 on the net penalty category. That's eighth most the eighth best, rather, since 2009-2010. Now, that's probably on Connor McDavid, you know, being a good disciplined hockey player and, for the most part, not taking too many penalties. He draws a lot more than he gets. Johnny Gaudreau, speaking of guys that uh, draw a lot of penalties, he has 206 penalties drawn since this stat was being tracked. Uh, 62nd on that list since 2009-2010. His net penalty is plus 156. That's fourth best since the league was keeping track of this stat. So he's uh, a little bit behind McDavid in the penalties drawn department. And he's been in the league for a year, two years, a bit more than McDavid. Even still, that's pretty impressive. And that's because he's very, very disciplined. Like, um, for example, uh, in 2020-21, even though it was a down year for him, he only took three penalties. And in his third season, he only took two and drew 36. So that's all on Johnny Gaudreau being a disciplined hockey player. Nathan McKinnon, he's drawn 231 penalties, 52nd on that list since 2009-2010. His net penalty is plus 132. That's ninth on uh, that list since 2009-2010. Sidney Crosby, on the other hand, if you look at the amount of penalties that he has drawn since the stat has been tracked, his highest was 36 in 2009-10. That ranked him 36 in the league in penalties drawn, but he took 34. So that's a plus two net penalty. Only plus two, and he drew 36 penalties, which I find is pretty interesting. Uh, 2010-11, when uh, the concussion uh, courtesy of David Steckel happened, he drew 23 penalties and took 14 penalties. So that's a plus nine net penalty. The next year, his net penalty was negative one. He uh, drew six, took seven. The next year, plus 10. The next year after that, plus 10. The next year after that, plus 11. Then plus four, then plus seven, then negative one then plus 12, then plus 5, plus 2 last year, and so far this year it's negative 1. He's only played 9 games, hasn't drawn a penalty yet. But that is to say, you take a look at some of the years that Connor McDavid and Johnny Gaudreau have had. They've had years where they draw like 40-plus penalties. Crosby hasn't even done that once. Yeah. And his net penalty, the best net penalty he's had in a single season – is I believe that plus 12 rating he had in 2018-19, and he was 27th in the league that year. In fact, 
in terms of penalties drawn in a season, the highest that he had was 22nd, and that was 2013-14 when he drew 32 and took 22. I think that's mostly a case of Sidney Crosby defending himself. Because Sidney Crosby, as we know, is not much of a fighter, and I don't think he's that much of an undisciplined uh, player where he gets caught flat-footed all the time because he's so good and cerebrally aware of everything that's going on around the ice. I feel like a good chunk of those penalties are Sidney Crosby sticking up for himself, and unfortunately he's taking penalties as a result of it. So I, I, I wouldn't say there's a superstar treatment or as much to the extent as we think about it. And if there is also, um, I couldn't really give you a definitive answer as to how to solve that uh, predicament, much like you, Brad. Yeah, actually, you know, I, I've, I remember my point, and I'm about to re, um, revise what I just said. Um, okay. So, well, first off, I, I feel like um, I, I think we came across as, like, different. Uh, we have different opinions on, on what superstar treatment means, I guess. Because you, yeah. you were talking about, like, drawing penalties. And, and, yeah, that is definitely a part of the game, and... You did mention yeah. what happened to Goudreau a couple of years ago, and I agree with that as well, that that was a little bit unfair to Goudreau as well. Um, I, I think they're, like, but, like, I, I think when, I, I'm talking about superstar treatment because, like, Crosby made a dirty hit on Martin Farabee, um, and he didn't get suspended for it. And I feel like, um, and, and it, you know, in a way... And I, I think, like, if Crosby was not Sidney Crosby that we know, he, he did not, he doesn't have any name recognition, that that player would be, uh, would have gotten suspended for that. Um, and, and so that's my point where I feel like just from that one example, I think there is some form of superstar treatment where the NHL doesn't want to suspend Sidney Crosby because that's bad for uh, the league. Um so, so that's, that's kind of what I mean. But yes, you do have a point that like, there are like, you know, there's countless examples of players not getting calls. Um, there's, there's all that different stuff about like, you know, players not drawing penalties and, and things like that. And, you know, or like just players who draw a ton of penalties are always the, the super superstars in the league. So that's fair too. Um, I do think though, that a way to fix it, and while you were speaking, and it was something that I was like, oh, yeah, that, that could fix this situation purely, and this gets to our next question of, like, what could be done to make penalties more consistent from regular season and playoffs? I think that's a good start, is I, I think both of us are both, we just want to see consistency. Um, yeah. You know, uh, whether you call all the penalties or you call none of the penalties. Just just keep it consistent where it's like the regular season, um, you call you you're much more relaxed like you are with the playoffs, and then that in that way, then Connor McDavid can get more used to what what it's like in the playoffs. Um, there is that other aspect of like the fact that like the playoffs are won't be as special without that sense of it, but there's other th- factors of the uh, that can make the playoffs more special and things like that. Cause you're playing the same team at least uh, four times 
um, and uh, you know, and I can get your blood boiling in a short amount of time, um, and all that stuff. But um, yeah, so it, it's definitely like there there could be something where just more consistency with the players, um, and I think yeah, like when something like that happens again, where Crosby makes a dirty play, or even if it's McDavid who makes a dirty play, suspend the guy. Um, it doesn't matter how good Conor McDavid is, how good Leon Dreisaitl is. If they have a dirty play, suspend them. And I take it back to like the NBA where uh, LeBron James had a, had a pretty dirty play the other day where he was like, I think he was, he got in a fight. Um, and the NBA, they uh, suspended LeBron James. Um, and I don't, I don't know if, I, I, I feel like um, if like McDavid, did the same thing, uh, like, I mean, I, obviously hockey does allow fighting in the league, so maybe there is some issue with that, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think, uh, Conor McDavid probably wouldn't get suspended for it, or they would be more lenient towards it, so I think that is a way to kind of, like, uh, kind of level the playing field in a way, is, yeah, be consistent, and not treat, and treat every player like, they're a normal player, um, even though that is impossible to do because, um, you know, Sidney Crosby's really good at hockey and Conor McDavid's really good at hockey. And you want, you know, it's better for the bottom line when your players aren't getting, when those players aren't getting suspended because then it, it adds to the attendance, it adds to the appeal. But, um, but yeah, on the other hand, I think we would just like to see more consistency Um from the NHL is just, yeah, just suspend players when, uh, they deserve to be suspended. And also, yeah, call, just be consistent from the regular season to the playoffs, um, like the refs are, and don't do what Tim Peel does, uh, where it's just, uh, you, you feel like you have to make up a call for the other team just, just to make it fair. And if you do it, don't do it on camera. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or admit to it. Yes. (laughs) Um, so yeah, uh, I guess, do you have anything else to add to that? What could be done to make penalties more consistent from regular season and playoffs? Uh, I think you summarized, uh, my thoughts pretty well. I, th- I agree with pretty much, uh, with, with, with pretty much everything that you mentioned. Like I said, when you're a hockey fan and you're just enjoying the playoff atmosphere, like nothing beats playoff hockey and nothing sullies it more than a very 50-50 call uh, that probably doesn't need to be called in that situation. And that's that's where the consistency matters there. If you go into the game, you know what to expect. You can just enjoy the game. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, the external factors with the officiating. I feel like that's on every fan's mind nowadays. Um especially I'm sure Lee fans considering they've been cursed for like over half a century. Um, I, I, I think just more so, like you said, you know, we know what to expect when we're going into a hockey game and we can just watch the players play and just admire the talent out there. We don't want to see any cheap shots. We don't want to see any fights going on. We just want to see a well-officiated, clean-cut game that's fun to watch. Those are the games that we that we love to look back on and, and admire and watch as kids and watch as adults, you know, 20 years from now. 
everyone remembers, you know, that famous playoff game they went to, where they were when it happened, what they were feeling over the course of the game, how they felt when their team scored the winning goal. Like, you want those NHL classics that people look back on 20 years from now. And I feel like uh, inconsistent officiating can easily ruin that. Some might say it, caught, it adds more intrigue. Um, in Game 7 of a playoff series, you don't need any more intrigue added to the storyline. You, you just want to see the players give it their all. Right, right. Yeah, um, definitely. And I, I think it does add to the atmosphere a little bit when it's like, oh, there's less power plays on the things. And ultimately, a Stanley Cup team shouldn't be like a team that relies on the power play to get their points because then it's like you're not really the best team because you don't you know it's an it is an advantage um but but yeah on the other hand i i think there there should be more consistency and there's other elements to the play, playoff hockey so i can make it more special um but yeah I, I would just like you know keep the calls consistent and 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 suspend the players when they deserve to be suspended. Um, all right. Uh, so it's kind of a, actually a short episode for us here. Um, <laughs> but, but that's about it for us here. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, Facebook is Lace Them Up. Our, fa- our Twitter is Lace Up Podcast. Um, follow us on there. Um, our, uh, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud at Lace Them Up, uh, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcast. Um, yeah, uh, Apple podcast. Um, it's just Lace Them Up. Please subscribe. Um, and yeah, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in episode 297 of the Lace Them Up podcast.